Zealous greetings, pre-Raphaelite fans, Technicast listeners, and interested humans, and welcome to this podcast on Elizabeth Siddle. I'm Nat, and if you linger with me, I'll be your guide through the feral and fascinating world of this Victorian artist and poet. So if you're intrigued by pre-Raphaelite painting, supernatural Scottish ballads, walking corpses, and surprisingly menacing prayer books, I respectfully invite you to step this way. Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle. I wonder if or what you've heard of her. Perhaps you think of Millet's Ophelia drowning in a bath, all flaming hair and unlit candles. Perhaps you know the ghoulish legend of that same flaming hair filling a coffin in Highgate Cemetery. Or perhaps you've seen Siddle recently, as part of the National Portrait Gallery's pre-Raphaelite sisterhood, her work displayed alongside fellow artists like Marie Spartali Stillman and fellow poets like Christina Rossetti. Elizabeth Siddle was both of these things, an artist and a poet, active in the mid-Victorian period. She was part of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood's artistic circle, the innovative group who sought their inspiration from medieval art pre-Raphael and avoided the vague, sloshy backgrounds and strict painting hierarchies that came after him. Like many pre-Raphaelite artists, Siddle uses her paintings to retell stories from medieval and medievalist literature depicting characters and crucial scenes from ballads and poems. But Siddle does not just depict the stories she retells in her art. She changes things. She adds startling details not present in her source material. And, as we'll talk about today, she takes already unsettling stories of familial deceit, bloody tragedy and restless ghosts and intensifies them into new chaos. When I'm thinking about Siddle's brand of chaos, I find it helps to channel some queer theory. Critic Louise Tondeur suggests that queerness is that which mismatches, defamiliarizes, destabilizes, disidentifies, and decenters. As you'll see in a moment, Siddle's art and poetry do all of these things in abundance. If we, the 21st century onlookers, are reading Siddle queer, there's also something very queer about the way Siddle herself reads her source material and retells her stories. Let's take a Siddle painting then and see how this works. I love this painting, it's currently my favourite, and I'm fervently hoping you'll come to love it too. It's a watercolour from 1857 called Clark Saunders, and we're about to tumble headlong into its terrifying world. The subject matter of Siddle's Clark Saunders comes from an ancient Scottish ballad. 
The 19th century poet and novelist Walter Scott published an anthology of ballads called Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border, and it's here that Siddle found the story of Clark Saunders. As you're doubtless beginning to suspect, it's not a cheery tale. It concerns a young woman called Margaret, who plans to marry her sweetheart Saunders. Saunders persuades her that of course they can get away with sleeping together before the marriage. But whilst the couple are sharing Margaret's bed, her seven brothers sneak in and stab Saunders to death. Because his death is so horrific and untimely, Saunders does what any medieval murder victim would do and returns to Margaret's window as a revenant or walking corpse. Undead Saunders begs Margaret to give him back his troth, his lover's vows, so that he can rest. Margaret agrees, but only as long as he can reassure her that women who die in childbirth go to heaven, hinting that she is pregnant and worried she won't survive labour. Saunders reassures her, and she gives him his troth, kissing a willow wand and passing it through the window to him. She asks if she can join him in his grave. He refuses. And there's your story. If I haven't put you off with the sudden profusion of medieval zombies, let's talk about what Siddle does with this grisly tale, and how she can possibly make it more disastrous than it already is. Clark Saunders' The Painting depicts the climactic ritual the moment when Margaret is kissing the willow wand, about to pass it to the spectral Saunders, who waits wanly at her window. Margaret's bedroom has gloomy stone walls and sparse furnishings, a bed with bed curtains on which she kneels, a large keyhole-shaped window at which the corpse stands. The painting's style is consciously medievalist, like a manuscript miniature. It's a small, enclosed space with angular, androgynous figures and a window looking out towards a tiny churchyard and cityscape beyond. But there is one crucial detail in Siddle's painting which the story does not mention. In the bottom right-hand corner, she's added a prayer lectern, and on this lectern, on a bright blue cloth, there's a closed prayer book. Not just any prayer book. This little book is a book of hours. How do I know that? How did Siddle know that? What's it doing there? And why am I so excited about a small medieval prayer book? Well, let's begin at the beginning. What is a book of hours? It's a type of manuscript that was extremely popular in the late medieval period. The books contained prayers for each canonical hour of the day and were lavishly illustrated with miniatures depicting scenes from the Virgin Mary's life. Your book-owning medieval human marked the hours by reading the prayers and gazing at the relevant illustrations at various points of the day. If you're a monk or a nun, you start marking the hours at midnight with an hour called matins. If you're a lay person, you keep matins around dawn instead. How can we tell, then, that Margaret's book is a book of hours? The first clue's in the way that Siddle depicts it. Books of hours have a habit of turning up in their own illustrations, sat on a cloth and lectern in the corner of a composition. 
Siddle's book, Cloth and Lecton, replicates this arrangement. Moreover, Siddle knew how medieval artists depicted books of hours because she'd seen some. Siddle briefly had a patron, John Ruskin, famous fan of the Gothic and supporter of the Pre-Raphaelites, who collected books of hours, and he invited Siddle to examine them. But Margaret's book of hours is not just medievalist set dressing, it invites us to play detective. Even though Siddle's book is shut, we know that books of hours have specific pictures that go with specific times of day. We also, if we've been reading Clark Saunders' The Ballad very thoroughly, know that Margaret and Saunders' Willow Wand Exchange happens at a specific time of day. Saunders' Revenant appears, as the text describes, an hour before the day, and leaves at Cockcrow. That time slot, for a layperson like Margaret, fits the canonical hour of Matins and Matins is represented by a very specific composition, that of the Annunciation. If you look at Annunciations in Books of Hours, you'll find the same motifs occurring again and again. The angel Gabriel tends to come in through a window. Sometimes he kneels. The Virgin Mary is surprised on a bed with its curtains drawn back. Gabriel holds something out to Mary, always the same stem-like shape. Sometimes a lily flower, sometimes a scroll with the Ave Maria on it, a medieval speech bubble. Strategic architecture emphasises the character's halos, the arch of the window around Gabriel's head, perhaps. The Book of Hours usually turns up in the picture, either in Mary's hands or on a lectern nearby. I very much hope this list is sounding familiar. When you reflect that the Annunciation is a dialogue between a woman and the supernatural being that has entered her room, a dialogue which concerns the fate of the woman's pregnancy, it starts to sound an awful lot like Clark Saunders. Siddle's entangling of Saunders and Margaret's ritual with this sacred encounter uses pictorial motifs from the medieval Annunciation composition to reinforce this connection. Saunders' revenant enters Margaret's room through the window. Margaret's furnishings, bed, bed curtains, lectern, book of hours are all Annunciation staples. There's even a stem-like object being passed between the figures, the willow wand that Margaret passes to Saunders. But there's something fraught at work here. Clark Saunders' allusions to the Annunciation fulfil all the queer prerequisites we talked about earlier. They mismatch, defamiliarise, destabilise, disidentify and de-centre. Though all the Annunciation references are there in Siddle's painting, they're not quite right. For instance, there's no direct alignment of Margaret with Mary and Saunders with Gabriel, or vice versa. Instead, Mary and Gabriel's roles and attributes are broken up and distributed between Margaret and Saunders. Though Saunders appears at the window, he's missing the halo and the stem-like object. 
like a botched, forced perspective photograph, Saunders stands too close to Margaret for the window to provide him with the halo he lacks. Saunders isn't an angel. Though he tells Margaret about heaven and her pregnancy, his knowledge is borrowed and comes with no celestial guarantees. Instead, it is Margaret who kneels to give him the stem-like object with the supernatural power to transform his state of being, the willow wand that will lay him to rest. Bringing the Annunciation into Clark Saunders results in a pictorial dismemberment which reduces the sacred composition to disarticulated bits, while Siddle's patron Ruskin is famous for cutting illustrations out of manuscripts, Siddle's painting cuts up the very illustration. The Annunciation, which has stood for centuries across countless books of ours with one stable, optimistic meaning, is cut up and placed in a context where it can't mean that anymore. Instead, the Annunciation's promise of a miraculous pregnancy and a bright new epoch is darkly subverted by Siddle's painting. As we know from the ballad, Margaret and Saunders' Matins' encounter curtails, not enables, their bright future. The willow wand parts them forever, and Margaret is afraid of her pregnancy as an end, not a beginning. Siddle co-opts the disarrayed annunciation motifs to depict this moment of fear and misery, snapping old links between signifier and signified. What we end up with is a set of confused, chaotic and pessimistic implications, far removed from their original associations. Can it get more confused, chaotic and pessimistic than it currently is? Sweet listeners, it can. It's not just medieval depictions of the Annunciation that Clark Saunders destabilises. There's another Annunciation being referenced here too. Seven years before Siddle painted Clark Saunders, her husband, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, also sought to reimagine the Annunciation. Rossetti's painting, Ecce Anchila Domini, depicts the Annunciation in an unconventionally troubling way, with a muscular Gabriel thrusting a lily at the womb of a cowering virgin. Yet the arrangement of Annunciation motifs in Rossetti's painting is correct in a way which Siddle's painting avoids. Rossetti's Gabriel and Mary play their roles, the stem-like object does its usual job, and the angel's head lines up perfectly with the window for an architectural halo. Siddle flips Rossetti's composition into a darkened, distorted mirror image. Though they appear on opposite sides to their Rossettian positions, Clark Saunders references Rossetti's blue bed curtain, red-haired woman on the bed in her nightgown, male figure with his posture and hairstyle, architectural halo antics, and stem-like object. The transition between paintings is transformative. Siddle's woman kneels up instead of shrinking back. Siddle's object changes hands. Siddle's halo is maddeningly off-centred. There's one motif, however, which doesn't swap sides. And it's this motif that's going to lead us to our conclusion today. In the bottom right-hand corner of Rossetti's Annunciation, 
there is a red altar cloth on an embroidery frame. This embroidery is in the same place and almost the same shape as Siddle's Book of Hours on its blue cloth lectern. Rossetti's embroidery also appears in one of his earlier works, The Girlhood of Mary Virgin, where Mary prepares for her sacred purpose by sewing it. It then reappears complete as her purpose is fulfilled in his Annunciation. Siddle's lectern, however, adds something of an unauthorised sequel to the embroidery's progress. The object which embodied the Virgin's neat upward trajectory in Rossetti's works becomes, in Clark Saunders, the book and lectern which bind the Annunciation to Siddle's painting and its disruptively tragic tale. But the change of colour, from red to blue, is important too. The switch echoes, or possibly prefigures, imagery in Siddle's undated poem, Oh Never Weep for Love That Is Dead. Let's hear the first stanza of this poem. It'll help us understand what might be at stake in the painting. Oh never weep for love that is dead, since love is seldom true, but changes his fashion from blue to red, from brightest red to blue. And love was born to an early death, and is so seldom true. In this stanza, Siddle shows how a shift from red to blue is able to disrupt solid foundations. The first and last couplets, the lines either side of the red and blue switching, are almost copies of each other, but the last couplet is an inexact repetition, with small word alterations that throw off the rhyme scheme. It's as if, with the central axis of the stanza representing a moment of unstable change, the lines following it struggle to retain their form. The colour switch also answers the crucial question, what has doomed this love to, as the poem describes, an early death? The answer is, the same instability that disrupts the rhyme and repetition. The fact that the love lurches between red and blue and lacks a stable form prohibits it from preserving a stable meaning and kills it off. So this pictorial instability condemns the subject of Siddle's poem, to use her exact words, to be born to an early death. Just like with Margaret's fears of dying in labour and the dismembered annunciation that captures these fears in Siddle's painting, doomed childbirth is once again being entangled with disrupted arrangements and unstable meanings. But this fixation on failed pregnancies has a further ominous resonance in the painting, brought in by the annunciation references which speaks not just to Margaret and Saunders' plight, but to an unravelling world beyond them. The Annunciation is a moment with consequences. The interaction between the angel and the virgin sets the tone for the epoch to follow it. Before the moment was dragged into Clark Saunders, the Annunciation represented a bright new future for humankind. In the Victorian period, this idea of a new age dawning was also a major preoccupation of writers and artists, except they didn't always regard their new age as an improvement on the creativity of previous centuries. The 19th century poet Matthew Arnold was especially gloomy. 
he adopts Siddle-esque language in his poem Stanzas from the Grand Chartreuse, when he describes the Victorian age as the unborn product of a botched pregnancy, a world that is powerless to be born. Because Siddle presents Margaret and Saunders' moment of ritual severance through fragments of the Annunciation, she endows that moment with the capacity to dictate the nature of an epoch, just as the original Annunciation does. The epoch Clark Saunders forecasts, however, is in accord with these dire 19th century predictions, standing on unstable foundations and thus doomed to a tragic curtailment. Siddle's painting suggests that we'd be right, like Margaret, to worry about what sort of a future could be born, or not born, or born to an early death from such a moment. Clark Saunders is an annunciation for the 19th century, the post-romantic age, in which past certainties and fixed meanings have been prized apart, a state with which, perhaps, we can acutely empathise. Siddle's Clark Saunders contains multitudes. The painting both enacts a disruptive queer reading of medieval motifs and gestures towards the apocalyptic consequences of its own destabilising practice. But this is only one of her paintings, one of her poems. Her whole corpus is seething with unsettling creative impulses like these ones, and my research is dedicated to chasing them up. I hope I've left you today, if not quite reeling from unexpectedly ominous interactions with primary colours, prayer books and ballads, at least attuned to the spiralling weirdness of Siddle's work, in which profitable chaos dances with direful consequences. But the questions I've asked can probe anything engaged in the act of creative retelling. What's transformed, unsettled, queered or dismembered in the doing? What new chaos appears at the bedroom window? I've been Nat Reeve, PhD candidate at Royal Holloway, University of London, and this has been my Technicast. Editing by Joe Hutton, music by me, sound assistance by Claudia Chapman. Fervent thanks to Polly, Joe and the Techni team for all their help and for giving me this opportunity. And thank you for listening. <laughs>